guys, and welcome to Murder Most Gruesome. My name's Andrea. And I'm Yvonne. And today, a little bit of a trigger warning with this case that we're going to cover today. It has adult themes and involves sexual assault and murder of young children. Not all, not particularly suitable for some viewers and young audiences. And it's Yvonne that's going to be telling you the story of the murders of Judith and Susan Mackay today. Over Hi. to you, Yvonne. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so I'm going to start by introducing some called the Flinders Highway and this is an isolated 800 kilometre stretch of road and it runs between Townsville and Mount Isa in Queensland. This stretch of road has earned itself the nickname the Highway of Death. Wow. As between 1970 and 2018, 12 people have either disappeared or been murdered on this desolate stretch of road. In fact, only one of the cases linked to this road has ever been solved, and local even locals try and avoid driving on it during the night. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. It's really, that just miles and miles of just nothing. You know, you know, you see these films where they're in the like they call it. I'm not quite sure if it's the outback, but um, you see them driving down these roads and there's nothing mm. but yeah. That that's kind of what Flinders Highway is like. And it's it's hard for us to kind of understand because we obviously we're in England and yeah. it's such a small place and you'd be really hard pushed most places in England to drive anywhere where you didn't pass another car or pass another person. Yeah. It's really it's really hard to wrap your head around, isn't it? Yeah, I think if you travelled forty five minutes an hour, you could hit a major city from anywhere really in, in yeah, England. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um and certainly that kind of length of road is unheard of in England. I mean America I think might be similar. There might be really, really long mm. stretches of road, but it's something we can't I can't comprehend anyway. I think our biggest one is um M one, isn't it? That yeah. goes from like London to up Leeds. to Leeds, yeah. yeah. I think even that's only about two hundred odd miles. Yeah, it takes about four out mm-hmm. three three and a half four hours ish to drive, maybe. So even on. locals don't like going on it, especially not at night. There have been a few theories about these murders and disappearances because the murders, people have disappeared, men, women, um, children of which we're going to talk um, about today. And one theory is a thrill killer is operating along the stretch of road, or maybe more than one. Mm. And police have had some leads that would support this, but they've never led anywhere. Another theory is that there's more than one perpetrator who uses the empty stretch of road as their hunting grounds. Right. That is the backdrop to our podcast today. It, we're looking into the murders of seven-year-old Judith Mackay and her five-year-old sister, Susan Mackay. Right. Okay, to set the scene, it was another beautiful day on the morning of the 26th of August, 1970. So talking over 50 years ago now. Yep. And two sisters, Judith, age seven, Susan, age five, left their home in Aikenvale, Aikenvale, Townsville, and walk the short distance, around 200 metres, to the bus stop to travel by bus to their Aikenvale school for around... This were about 8am left. When they failed to return home from school, the alarm was raised and the parents actually realised they'd been missing all day. God, so they thought the kids they were at school. They thought they were at school. School hadn't rung home and asked why they weren't in school. I mean, my children, if they're not in school, I get a message to tell me within about an hour of school starting. Yeah, but I wonder whether that's just the age that we're living in. I, do, I think that as well. I think um, this was the 1970s. 
it wasn't as there weren't the computers no. registers were done by uh, by hand i mean i i used to be a teacher and i can remember when i started teaching in 2000 we're still doing registers paper registers, paper yeah. registers. they were the official document and you handed those in um and now it's all on computers yeah. you're logging yeah but even that doesn't work because i had a phone call about two three weeks ago saying my daughter wasn't in school and i dropped her off in school now my daughter's 16 but and i started to panic i, te- I texted her back and said she should be in school i dropped her off i texted her it was just a the teacher taking the register had over it there'd been a mistake she yeah. was actually in school and the texting back and told me that but but it is so easy to make a mistake isn't it kids come in late yeah. and you don't add them to the register yeah and, yeah okay or somebody or you think they've answered because it's a busy classroom but we've got we've kind of gone off track here but so the, when they didn't return home um obviously the, the soon realized they'd not been at school all day so a search was then mounted to look for the two sisters obviously searched all the places to and from school didn't know where they'd gone only two days later their brutalized bodies were found and this was on the 28th of august oh. so two days later in a dry creek bed in Antill creek which was about 25 kilometres or 16 miles from where they went missing in Townsville. So Susan's body was found first and there was a trail of footprints leading from her body and this led searchers 70 metres away to Judith's body. So police thought that Judith must have tried to run for her life whilst Susan was being murdered. And then the perpetrators chased after her and then killed her. Oh, God. So it's absolutely Please. awful. At a later post-mortem, it's found that Susan had been raped and strangled and then stabbed three times in her chest. Judith had also been raped and stabbed three times in her chest. But her cause of death was found to, to have been due to her being asphyxiated by sand. So, so that's awful. She cho- she choked on sand, whether her head had been shoved into the sand. I mean, chillingly, their school uniforms, straw hats and shoes were placed neatly beside them and each little shoe contained a neatly folded sock and their school uniforms were folded neatly inside their school bags. Oh, God, that's terrible. Yeah. So where they were found were a bit of a, I think, just a pull-off somewhere, mm-hmm. a little bridge there, um, just a really desolate place. So, as you can imagine, these brutal murders of young children, I mean, seven and five, um, shocked and outraged the community, as you can imagine. Now, police were initially reluctant to post a reward, but after they'd interviewed more than 6,000 local men, they were running out of leads or ideas for suspects and there being no progress in the investigation, they posted a $10,000 reward. Remember, this is, I mean, that's a lot of that money now. That is a lot of money now, yeah. We're talking then. 50 years ago. And an offer of immunity for any accomplice that came forward. So that's quite a big thing to offer somebody yeah, yeah. Um, immunity, but they really didn't have anything. You really want to catch these mm. this killer. Yeah. Um, and also... Remember, due to the time there wasn't DNA evidence, it was quite hard, and, and these strange killings as well. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, DNA and stuff wasn't sophisticated enough. Well, to... weren't even invented. No. no, I mean there were fingerprints, but if somebody wore gloves, then that would have yeah, yeah. been the end of that. There were a few witnesses who came forward with information. 
So one witness reported seeing the girls talking to a man in a car at the bus stop at about 8.10am. Just after 11am, a car pulled into a service station at Air, A-Y-R, I don't know whether I'm, I'm pronouncing that, that correctly, Air, which is 53 miles south of Townsville. And the driver purchased five gallons of petrol and the station attendant, her name was Jean Thwaite, reported seeing two girls in the car and the youngest one asking, are we there yet? And the older girl saying, when are you taking us to mummy? Promise to take us to mummy. Oh God. Yeah. Now, not long after this sighting, a soldier who had recently returned from Vietnam and his name was Neil Lunny, had words with a driver who had cut him off and he later told police that he saw two girls in Aitken Vale school uniforms in the car and the driver appeared to be trying to avoid being seen. However, police believe these two sightings to be unreliable as they described the car as the Vauxhall and we'll go back into that. They, they kind of wrote this off because they believed it was another car that the murderer had used. But right. it gets a bit complicated. They are very similar looking cars. When I've done my research, they are very similar looking cars. This particular Vauxhall to the car that they thought the murderer um, drove. Right. So more reliable accounts identified the man um, the police wanted to question as driving a car like a Holden. And several witnesses saw the girls in this type of car. They were very similar looking. They are very similar looking. And I think I might post that on our, um, on our Facebook, the two cars. They, they are very similar. A Holden car was later seen by two witnesses at the murder scene at around 1pm around that day. Despite the differences in the car identified, both witnesses who saw the children inside the car gave nearly identical descriptions of the driver. So they said he had high cheekbones, a narrow skull, short dark hair, and even one witness saying he had Mickey Mouse type ears. And they also said that the car had a driver's door that was a different colour to the rest of the car. That's... Yeah. That's quite unique. Yeah, unique, that's the word, yeah. Lunny and Thwaite, so the um, the person who'd been cut up and the petrol station attendant, oh, the soldier. Um, would then go on to sign statements that said the car they saw could have been a Holden. Now, the police strongly believe that the car seen partner the murder scene was the offenders, and they put all their effort into tracing the car. And unbelievably, no sketch or photo fit of the wanted driver was ever released. Right. Police were unable to trace the car and then the murders went unsolved. So the police was so intent on it being a holding car that they didn't they didn't even release this you know, both witnesses said they could describe the man and could do it, but it was just never done and never released. That so. seems crazy. That Especially does, yeah. if you've got a couple of accounts that are very similar. Exactly. The man later charged with the crimes was a man called Arthur Stanley Brown. He matched the subject suspects, and when I said charge with crimes, it was a long, long time after. Now, he matched the suspect's description and owned a blue Vauxhall Victor, which, like I've said, is similar uh, to both cards identified, identified by the witnesses, with an odd coloured door. Now, he was never a suspect in the original police investigation. Uh, the evidence from the witnesses who saw the girls in the car was rejected as police as being unreliable as they strongly believed the car was a holding. The two witnesses were never questioned in depth and police later admitted that this hindered investigations as they were both the only witnesses to speak to the girls in the car. 
Right. So I think police ignored it at the time. I think since then I've realised actually it was important lead. It was, yeah. You know, they were, they were in all likelihood the girls. The case went quiet for nearly two decades. And in 1998, Crime Stoppers, a programme in Australia, aired a programme about the Mackay murders. And a woman rang in and told the police that she had been molested by a man called Arthur Brown. She was, uh, he was her cousin's husband, so the woman who had been abused, um, her cousin's husband abused her. And she expressed her suspicion that he was involved in a girl's murder. Sergeant David Hickey of the Queensland Homicide Squad and was in charge of the cold case review of the Mackay murders. He returned her call three days later. And this started months of investigations by him and Detective Brendan Rook. And they interviewed other family members. And in that phone call actually resulted in 45 cases against this Arthur Brown, Arthur Stanley Brown, relating to paedophilia. With his family? Yep. Well, with anyone, any oh. young girl he could get his hands on. Jesus. It's a really nasty piece of work. It's prolific. Yeah, it really is prolific. But they say this about these paedophiles that, you know, they catch or they get charged with one, but there's there can be absolute, there can be just a danger to every child in there. That they've ever come across. Yeah. And developed circumstantial evidence linking him to the Mackay murders. Right. So as police investigated, more and more evidence built up. Arthur Stanley Brown had been working as a carpenter at the Mackay Sisters School at that time. So he was working at, at the, he was work, actually working at their school. And he so was not a stranger to them. No, not a stranger. He was obsessed by the case, saying falsely that he knew the girl's father and offered to take two of his wife's cousins to view the crime scene two weeks after the murders. Two of his own wife's cousins. Yeah. So there must have been young children. So offered to take them to the crime scene where they were found two weeks after after the murders. He replaced the odd-coloured door from his Vauxhall Victor, buried it, and then later dug it up and took it to the rubbish tip, giving the reason to his family he did it because he didn't want anyone interviewing him or annoying him. So he got rid of the odd door and buried it, must have thought twice, and then took it to the local tip. He took... So when the police investigated all these... Um, you know, this, we had all these cases of paedophilia. Yeah. When, when police interviewed his family and his victims, they actually told the police that he took them... A lot of, a lot of the victims said they took them to the Antill Creek, so the same place these girls were murdered and left where he molested them and they the actually worked out it was only 20 metres away from the murder scene. Um, he, he confessed twice to these murders, once in September 1970, so about a month later. He was drinking with John White, a 19-year-old, who he didn't actually know. And White claimed that he brought up the murder case and told him the police were looking for the wrong car. Um, he had committed, and that he had actually committed the murders. Now, although White went to the police, reported the conversation, they dismissed it. No. Yeah. In nineteen seventy-five, he confessed again to his apprentice John Hill, who he didn't come forward to the police at the time, as he thought it. He just thought it was totally out of character, and he just thought it, it was making a joke in you know in mm. bad taste. 
Brown was eventually arrested on all charges of sexual assault and the rape of six children and for the murders of Judith and Susan Mackey. Now, his, in his trial in 2000, the jury, unfortunately, failed to reach a unanimous verdict and there was a hung jury. So, a new trial. You know, they started a new trial, but this was blocked on the grounds that Brown was too senile by this point to be tried again. So, I think he was in his 70s, 80s. His arrest obviously attracted quite a bit of publicity and then a, and a witness and we're going to cover this case in our next podcast a witness to the 1973 Adelaide Oval abductions mm. where two children got taken in broad daylight from a football match at Adelaide Oval right and I show this witness identified Brown as a suspect she had actually seen really but identified him as by name no, but there was a in the Adelaide Ovals. The it, it snatched these, t- taking these two children. One of them was, I think she was about twelve, and he was taking her, and she was shouting at him. And there was a couple of witnesses, but all the witnesses thought that it was a parent or a granddad. Kind of like watched the scene, but didn't realise that it was it was an abduction until much later. And they've ne- and, and they've never they- found him. So it is possible that it was Arthur Stanley Brown. Yeah, and right, the identity okay. uh, kit sketch yeah. does look a lot like what he looked, what like. He looked like at the time. Right. So this witness to the Adelaide Oval abduction actually rang in and said, that is the man that I saw um, abduct those children 50 years ago. He's considered a, so he's considered a prime suspect in the Adelaide Oval abductions and also a suspect in the Beaumont children's disappearance. So that was another crime, the right. three children who went missing. Yep. We've done that podcast, the three children went missing, gone went down to the beach. They, and, and this isn't, I think this is all in a very similar area as well of Australia, as well as for several of the murders. So I'm just going to go a little into the background into this, this lovely man called Arthur Stanley Brown. And it's very... Uh, well, it's very interesting kind of story, really, and quite frankly, a bit unbelievable. It's one of those you, you won't believe it. Mm. He was born in Marinda, Queensland, on May the twentieth, nineteen twelve, and then he moved to Townsville when he was four year old. So that's kind of that's where Judith, Judith and Susan um, lived. When his parents separated, he moved to Melbourne with his mother, but returned to Townsville when he was about seventeen and worked as a meat packer. He was exempted from military service in World War II as his job was listed as a reserve occupation, a reserved occupation. Now, he then trained as a carpenter and worked for the Queensland Department of Public Works, where, you know, people who worked with him as colleagues, they found him to be polite, always immaculately dressed. Remember the neatly folded uniforms? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, his, he was nicknamed Scarlet Pimpernel based on the play, as he could be anywhere, at any time, due to his flexible work hours. And he really just had self-supervision. So his bosses didn't know where he was. He right. would be in and out. Most official government buildings, he could be in and out of doing doing, doing of jobs, work, doing you know. work. Yeah. yeah. He married Hester Porter in 1944, after her divorce, and became a stepdad to her three children. On May 15th, 1978, 
S. Hester, who was bedridden by arthritis, died from injuries. Um, died from injuries she sustained that Bl that Brown claimed she'd gotten from falling while trying to get on the commode. She'd basically hit her head and 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 died. Got concussion, hit her head, and passed passed away. Um, almost straight away, Hester's younger sister Charlotte um, Anderson, who had five children to herself, moved in with him. So they do actually think he was having an affair with his wife's sister right. while he was still married. Now she uh, fell and hit her head and died, and then he moved her younger sister Charlotte in. Now they married later that year. Now mem many members of Hester's family believe that Brown killed her. Yeah. Um, they, Sounds suspicious. Yeah, isn't it? they also obviously they also suspect she, he was having an affair with his sister before she died. Now, when police later investigated it, they actually found that the family family doctor had signed the death certificate without even viewing the body, and actually no post mortem had ever taken place. Right. So it really was his word that she'd like tried to get him out, fallen and hit her head, and then passed away. As you can imagine, then. He cremated the body. Yeah. So there's nothing to exhume, nothing to look at, um, you know, and I can't find it frankly believable, unbelievable. I know this is in the 70s, it's 50 years ago, but the fact that somebody could die at home and the doctor, no medical, nobody, even, nobody checked. even checked or looked at her. Hester's older sister, Millie, said that Hester had confided in her that she was afraid of Brown. Right. And that she had actually caught him, so his wife had actually caught him molesting a child. And had done his and had done her best to stop him from being alone with her children. But that which is lovely. I mean everyone else's children is fair game, but as long as like her children are protected. Yeah. I don't think they actually were. I no. think he did abuse them, but I why can't wouldn't you just, why wouldn't you kick him out? I why wouldn't you Yeah, why wouldn't you kill him? I know. I, I'm going to say, to be fair, if I walked in and somebody was abusing my kid... Well, she, I mean, it was a child. It wasn't oh, one of right, their children, okay. but she caught him molesting a child. I mean, that, for me, would be... Yeah. <sighs> Go to the police. Yeah. Kick him out. Do something. Don't, do something. Don't yeah. carry on don't, being married to him. Yeah. And sister as well. Didn't, why didn't she... Well, it's enabling it, isn't it? I don't know whether this... Um, well, yeah, why didn't the sister, sister go? Say. I mean, I should imagine it might be hearsay, but I'm sure the police would start to investigate. Well, you would hope they would. I'm going to be honest, Yvonne. If you told me you'd caught your husband abusing a child and you weren't doing going to do anything about it, I would. Yeah. I mean, we don't know the circumstances, everything Is about it. Is there any it, circumstances, though, that that's okay? No. I don't think there. Are, I don't think there is. Yeah, I mean, I'm living like. I don't life, mean but... the circumstances with the husband. I mean, like yeah. the the reason why she wasn't saying anything. Ugh, yeah, but Jesus. And and the thing is, if that had have happened, if she'd have gone to the police, he wouldn't have been free to murder. Murder. Well, suspected of murdering. Yeah, because he died a free man. He wouldn't have been a suspect. He'd have been in prison. So. Yeah. Potentially, his victims may never have been hurt. So, she caught him molesting a child. Hester, his wife, was um, was quoted as saying, "He doesn't just like he doesn't just like big girls. He likes little girls too." Ugh. So, in nineteen eighty two, 
another of Hester's sisters. So I don't know how many sisters there are. I think we're up to about four now. Because there was Hester, Charlotte, Millie, and yeah, then, and then another one. one. This is the fourth one. Told her parents that Brown had molested her when she was a small girl. After this, many of the extended family came forward to say that they had also been molested by Brown. So that was in 1982 this happened. So you're talking about 12 years on from the disappearance of the uh, Mackay sisters. And a lot of the extended family came forward to say that they'd been molested by him and he'd shown pictures of dead women in a secret room at his home. So he'd been showing these young children photos of dead women. Now, it doesn't go on to say what, you know, where they were from when I've researched it, but... You know, I think a couple of them had said this, so please believe that it happened. What, that Brown had had a, a secret room in his house? Yeah, and he molested children in there, and he'd also shown them right. photos of dead women. And the dead women weren't in that room, they were just, just photos of just general... Yeah. Po- right, okay. After his arrest for the double murder of Susan and Judith Mackay, Australian authorities investigated Brown for links to other additional crimes of a similar nature. And as a result, Brown was identified as the prime suspect in a number of unsolved murders. And I'll just preface this by saying Brown actually died an innocent man of these charges. Yeah, yeah. He was considered to see an outstanding trial. So not an innocent man, just not charged of any... Yeah. He's not innocent because people he's... come forward and said he's abused him. Yeah, so but... I don't know why they couldn't on the first count. Why didn't they straight away go after him on the child abuse? Well, exactly, but I think by that point it was just too old right. to too senile. Just protecting myself, allegedly, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, Brown is considered to be the best suspect for the Beaumont children's disappearance, as I, was, as I mentioned previously, as he bore a similarity to an identical picture of the suspect. I'll just quickly, we have talked about that in a, broad, uh, in a podcast, but just in case people haven't listened to that, and please go back and listen to that because it's a really interesting case. But Jane Beaumont, Anna Beaumont and Grant Beaumont. So we've got a nine-year-old girl, seven-year-old girl and a four-year-old boy. Left their home at 10am on a January the 26th, 1966. So four years before the murders of Judith and Susan Mackay. In the Adelaide suburb of Somerton Park. And they caught the bus to a nearby beach. Now a woman reported seeing the two girls and a boy come up from the sea after a swim and a tall, um, tall, um, blondish, brownish-haired man started talking to the children and they were never seen again. Um, a search for a connection to the Beaumonts was unsuccessful, so when they looked into um, our, uh, Brown's past, it was unsuccessful as no employment records existed that could shed light on Brown's work history, such as, you know, showing holidays where he may have travelled interstate. Now, some of the records were believed lost in the 1974 Brisbane flood, and it's also thought it was possible that Brown, who had unrestricted access to government buildings, may have destroyed his own employment files. Because right. don't forget, it would have been on paper. Yeah, yeah. You know, you just write that file; it's One gone. One copy, yeah. One copy of it, yeah. Um, it's also considered. You know, this is another case is considered um, prime suspect in a fourteen-year-old Marilyn Joy Wallman. Now she disappeared while on her way to school at Emio, Emio, um, Queensland, on March twenty-first, nineteen seventy-two. Now witnesses saw a blue Vauxhall in the area. 
around the time of the disappearance and Brown and his wife Hester had actually visited relatives in Mackay which was 13 kilometres from Imo uh, but his car, a blue Vauxhall, had broken down so he'd broken down and the couple returned home by train Brown returned to Mackay alone to pick up the car and police speculate that if the couple had taken an early train, Brown could have been passing um, IMEO at the time that Warman disappeared. Right. So they could place him in the vicinity. Um, a fragment of skull was discovered 40 kilometres away from where Warman went missing and was positively identified as being hers through DNA analysis done in January 2015. Right. So I think that's all they got left of this piece of skull and it was hers. Now... This is the Adelaide Oval case. Um, Joanne Ratcliffe, 11, and Kirsty Gordon, uh, 4, um, were two girls, Australian girls, who went missing while attending um, attending an Australian rules football match at the Adelaide Oval on August the 25th, 1973. Now, the presumed murders are thought by, thought by South Australia police and the media to be related to the disappearance of the Beaumont children in 1966. So the case is sometimes referred to as the Adelaide Oval abductions. Now, although there is no proof that Brown had ever visited Adelaide, a, win a witness recalled ha having a conversation with Brown in which he mentioned having seen the Adelaide Festival Centre nearing completion. So he must have mentioned that, oh, I, I saw this Adla the Adelaide Festival when it was nearly done. Mm. Now, that would say place him at in Adelaide after June 1973. Right. So, another witness who had earlier reported seeing a man near the Oval carrying a younger girl while another older girl in obvious distress followed. Now, they identified Brown as the man she had seen um, after seeing his picture on television in December 1998. Um, this was the one we talked about that said when he'd been arrested for the Mackay murders. Yeah. Now, she'd reported that the man was wearing a pair of horn-rimmed glasses which had fallen to the ground uh, been picked up and placed in a pocket. Now, Brown is known to have worn horn-rimmed reading glasses, which which police consider a significant point in the in, in the identification. Right. Another murder. Another murder is suspected of is 18-year-old Catherine Pamela Graham. Now, she was murdered in Oak Valley, which is 18 kilometres south of Townsville, on July the 28th, 1975. Now, Graham had been selling books door-to-door -door on the day she was murdered and she'd been door-knocking close to Brown's home. Now, Graham had phoned her mum from a phone box that evening. Remember, we don't have mobiles, it's the 1970s. So she'd rung her mother from a phone box and the last words to her mother were, there's someone peering at me, mum, and I don't like the look of him. Ooh. I know. Having left the phone box, she bought a burger at the nearby Rising Sunfish shop at 8.10pm then visited a friend in Townsville General Hospital. So she next proceeded to the Townsville Post Office where she was seen leaving at 9pm. So the next day, her brutally battered body was discovered in tall glass, grass off the Flinders Highway. So remember the Highway of Death, 24 kilometres west of Townville. Now, her body was discovered only 500 metres from where the bodies of the Mackay sisters had been found in 1970. So, they, remember, this is 1975. Yeah. Now, police have evidence that two men were involved in the murder, but admit that the disposal of Graham's body was very similar to that of the Mackay sisters. 
and there are other similarities, but those details have never mm. been released to the public. Going on to talk a bit about the uh, trial um, of Brown. Now, his trial for the murders of the Mackay sisters began on October the 18th, 1999. Now, I mean, that was 30 years after, well, 29 years after they, um, they were murdered. Now, although evidence um, regarding Brown's paedophilia had been given at the committal hearing, it had been ruled prejudicial at trial and therefore could not be put before the Supreme Court jury. Oh. Right, so they couldn't bring up anything about him being a paedophile. The jury was unable to reach a decision on the strong, but it was a circumstantial evidence. Now, a new trial was set for July the 25th, 2000, where the defence argued Brown was unfit to plead, and a new trial date was set for July the 31st, but before it could start, newspapers reported that the case did not proceed for legal reasons which cannot be published. So the court suppressed release of the these legal reasons until about a year later in July 2001. Now in 2001, it was revealed that Brown's lawyer had actually applied for a Section 613 verdict from the jury, which meant that Brown would have been considered unfit to be tried. So the jury had rejected the application, but in the meantime, Brown's wife, Charlotte, had referred the case to the Queensland Mental Health Tribunal. Right. And they actually ruled that Brown had progressive dementia and was also suffering from Alzheimer's disease and was thus unfit to stand trial. So the Attorney General lodged an appeal and the court concluded that the tribunal did not have the jurisdiction to overrule the jury and commissioned an independent psychiatric report. So in that July 2001, the report concluded that Brown was unfit to stand trial because he was suffering from dementia and Alzheimer's disease. And although the psychiatric report could not overrule the court's finding that the trial could proceed, Queensland Director of Public Prosecutions, Leanne Clare, announced on July the 3rd that her office had decided not to proceed with the retrial and all charges charges against him were dropped. Mm. So his wife, Charlotte, died in April 2002. So ostracised by his family, Brown had moved into a nursing home in Melanda where he died three months later on July the 6th. Now, officially an innocent man. <laughs> so he left instructions that no funeral notices be placed and only one stepdaughter had knowledge of the funeral's details, and his death was not reported until several weeks after the funeral. So, like I say, it's not a very happy conclusion to that case. I think they, this was police, you know, knew they'd got the right man, but obviously he was unfit. Uh, it's complicated as law, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. not a subject I know a lot about, but I think you've got to be able to participate in your own, own defence, really. But, um, so yeah, he, he died an innocent man. Yeah, so it, it's, um, yeah. I think he'll cause a lot of pain in his life and I hope he's uh, rotting in hell as we speak. Me too. If there is one. Thank he you. won't be rotting, he'll be burning. Burning in hell, yeah. Yeah. So, 
Thank you for listening to Thank our you. podcast. And may I, may I take this opportunity to let you know that we have Facebook. So like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram. We have a, um email uh, address, murdermostgruesomepodcast at gmail.com. So great. Thank you very much for listening today. Thank you. Thank you. And stay tuned because we'll be bringing a new podcast to you very soon. Yeah, I think it's going to be the Adelaide Oval that I'm going to do. Okay. it follows on nicely from this. Brilliant. Right, well, we'll look forward to hearing that again. Okay. All right then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.